Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. A Way Out of No Way, a memoir of truth, transformation, and the new American story is the new book from Georgia's junior U.S. senator, who also happens to be the senior pastor of the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. In this conversation, first recorded on June 20th for Washington Post Live, just days before the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion, Warnock talked about what drove him to become a pastor and how it informs his work as an elected official today. Remember, Warnock won his Senate seat on January 5th, 2021. So, in this post-Roe America, his views on the arc of American history are particularly resonant now. I think of America as a freedom caravan. Freedom is not a destination, it's a journey. And we have been on this journey to try to push the country closer to its ideals. We live somewhere between January 5th and January 6th, between the forces that would divide us and the forces that want to push us closer towards our ideals. I choose January 5th time and time again. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, Welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Great to be with you. Thank you so much, brother. Great to be with you as well. I'm glad I wore the light blue tie because I usually wear a tie like yours. We would have been twins. <laughs> that would have been all right with me, Jonathan. <laughs> all right, so let's let's get into your into your book. You your book opens with a, cha- a chapter entitled "Boys Like Us," and you write about two searing moments. I'll start with the one that involves you. You, your sister, and other pastor's kids were frisked after being suspected of shoplifting. And you write, quote, it was, quote, my first brush with the myriad ways in which Black people experience hurtful and demeaning racial stereotyping and discrimination in everyday life. Talk about how that incident shaped you. Well, thank you so much. Again, it's great to be here with you. and. Um... You know, uh, that Sunday afternoon, we were doing what church kids, particularly PKs, preacher's kids do. We were we had a little break in between services. You stay in church all day long. <laughs> and uh, we were in the grocery store, my sister and I, and some friends who were also PKs. And um, I was about 12 or 13 years old. I had a habit then of kind of walking around with my hands in my pocket, uh, normal kind of adolescent awkwardness. And uh, a man appeared out of nowhere and, and uh, said, come walk with, come go with me. He was dressed in army fatigues. And uh, my sister, being taught to obey authority, started walking. I said, well, wait, wait a minute, who are you? And he said, the police. I said, will you mind showing me a badge? And he flashed a badge. They, to make a long story short, they uh, marched us through the store, up the stairs where they've been watching us in an observation, uh, mirrored observation booth. And, um, uh, you know, we were all uh, frisked. And, um, of course, they found nothing because we hadn't taken anything. We were, we, were, we were just good kids in between two worship services. And that was my experience, my first experience with the kind of humiliation and everyday uh, aggressions that uh, mm-hmm. people 
experience. The, the, the other more painful moment uh, came later, later in life, and that involved the arrest of your older brother, a police officer. What happened quickly, and how did that impact your life's work? Well, what I try to do in that first chapter, Jonathan, uh, the book, A Way Out of No Way, which, by the way, is a phrase that comes out of the church, right? Uh, you're not in a, in a church uh, uh, for long, a black church. And when we say the black church, um, let me not assume I, that people know. I want you to know that we, we have never, ever meant anything racially exclusive about that. We're talking about the church literally born protesting racism, protesting discrimination. and. Um, saying that we of, of one blood, God has made all nations to dwell upon the face of the earth. So it is the church born really affirming our humanity and the ways in which all of us are part of the human family. Um, but in that first chapter, I juxtapose uh, my story with the story of my own brother. I come from a large family. I'm number 11 out of 12. I'm the first college graduate. And uh, I have an older brother who uh, went to prison for nonviolent drug-related offense. He was a police officer at the time, and um, you know he committed serious crimes for which he uh, has expressed deep remorse, and I think he's rehabilitated. But but part of what you see in that chapter is you know with he and I sharing the same bunk beds in the same room, growing up in public housing. Uh, I'm a United States senator today, but it's not lost on me uh, the thin line between how my life showed uh, turned out and how his turned out. And it's given me a, a sense of compassion, a kind of tender heart uh, as a pastor. And I think it informs the way in, in which I engage uh, issues as, as a legislator. Right. And as you write in the book, I mean, you worked very hard uh, after your brother's arrest. You worked very hard to make sure he was supported, that the justice system uh, treated him fairly as it's supposed to do um, in in our in in our judicial system. And you talk about the the care and love that you had for your brother, but while at the same time zeroing in on and focusing on the disparities in our criminal justice system. And when your brother was sentenced to life, uh, you you um, where did I where did I put my notes? You 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 write life. Nobody had died. Nobody had gotten physically hurt. Nobody even got high. Yet my brother, then a 33-year-old man, an Army veteran with no prior criminal history, was sent to prison for the rest of his life without the possibility of parole. Uh, I want to go back to something because you, pre you, you anticipated a question I was going to ask, and that is about the title of the book, A Way Out of No Way, which was not unfamiliar to me because I heard it said by the, the late great Congressman John Lewis a lot. But for a lot of people who don't know specifically what a way out of no way means, talk about that and why, it, why that phrase is so resonant for you. Yeah, it's a very common phrase in the black church experience. And again, I'm talking about the church that the slaves created. And it's been passed on from generation to generation. It is a phrase born of suffering, of travail and oppression, and yet keeping the faith in the midst of that uh, struggle, never giving in to uh, hate, never giving in to the kind of bitterness that destroys you, but putting one foot in front of the other. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, used to say that faith is taking the first step 
when you can't see the full stairwell. And uh, you're not in a black church long before you hear either the preacher or somebody in the choir or some mother in the church giving a testimony as she talks about how God has walked with her through life's valleys and difficult spaces. She says, you know, the Lord makes a way or God makes a way out of no way. It's a phrase also that acknowledges the importance of human agency. The truth, the unspoken part of that is that as we make our way, God makes a way out of no way. We do the work and we partner with God to make our lives better. And I think to make the lives of other people better. And it's a phrase by which I've tried to um, guide my own life and my own journey. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of Congressman Lewis to you? Um, not just because he was a civil rights icon, but you were his pastor. Right. Yeah, John Lewis uh, was a giant of a man. I'm deeply honored to have served as his pastor. Uh, there he is. We, we, we're standing there, and standing there also yeah. is Zernon Clayton. Yes, Zernon Clayton. Uh huh. Lieutenants of of the movement. They 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 both worked very closely with Dr. King, and it's one of the honors of being at Ebenezer Baptist Church and serving as the pastor. Uh, these are folks that I that I've moved in and around for the last several years. But I first met John Lewis when I was but a student at Morehouse College. We had an event at the school. We'd invited a number of uh, public officials to come, and John Lewis was the only one who showed up. I don't really remember what he said that night, but the fact that he was there with us meant the world. Uh, his his presence uh, spoke volumes, and. Um, I think of him a lot. Uh, I was able to work with him on a number of Sundays. We did something called Souls to the Poles, mm -hmm. where we would take people to vote and we'd wrap the bus in the, you know, in paraphernalia. So we'd encourage other people on our way to the polls to make their way to the polls. He never gave up the fight. And I think about him, especially in these dark and difficult days when there is the temptation to give in to cynicism and despair. Um, I think of John Lewis because, you know, when he was crossing that Edmund Pettus Bridge with nothing but a backpack and a trench coat, you know, he had no reason to think that he could win. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember thinking about that, Jonathan, as I was uh, preparing to officiate his funeral. I said to myself, what was John Lewis thinking when he was crossing that bridge? Here's what I know. He was not thinking that one day at his funeral, three American presidents will show up, would show up to pay homage on both sides of the aisle. He was not mm -hmm. thinking that one day he'd be the recipient of a presidential medal of freedom. I, I suspect that he was just hoping to stay alive that day so that he could fight the next day. Uh, but somehow by some stroke of destiny uh, mixed with human determination and courage, uh, he crossed the bridge and built the bridge at the same time to the future. Hmm. Uh, bent the ark a little bit closer to justice. And it reminds me that, that what we have to do is get up every morning, uh, make our way. And we don't know when the, when the light, when the sun will break through, but it's our job to wake up, show up, and do the hard work. I want to talk about another man who was instrumental, a pivotal uh, in your life, who made you get up early on Saturday mornings, not knowing exactly what you, why you had to get up uh, early on a Saturday morning, but he said, get up, and you did. And you write about this in your book, but it was also in, um, in an essay 
in the New York Times yesterday. And I want to read this because it is among the most beautiful tributes I've read uh, from one person to another, but especially from a son to a father. Um, your father uh, passed away years ago, but you write, my father represents the salt of the earth, blue collar brother, brilliant despite not having a college degree or prestigious credentials, innovative enough to create miracles with his hands, the kind of black man whose life doesn't make the headlines for either shooting hoops or shooting bullets, for breaking out or for breaking in. So like most among us, he remains unseen. He loved his wife, he took care of his family, he shepherded the people in his church, he endured racism, without becoming bitter, and he loved his country, he was, a love, he was a walking sermon. That gave me chills just reading it again. Talk about your dad. Oh, that was my dad. And um, look, uh, I was born in a poor family, but I feel like I hit the jackpot because I had two great parents. And, um, you know, I, I don't say that, uh, I, if that's not your story, I, I get it. And, and um, you know, if all of us are blessed in various ways, people show up in our lives. But I had great, two great parents. My dad uh, was an older father, born in 1917. He was 52 years old, the age I am now, when I was born. And, um, you know, my experience was this man waking me up every morning. He didn't believe in sleeping late. He had a fierce work ethic, <laughs> which he passed on to us. And, his idea was you wake up and you get dressed and you put shoes on. And one morning, as I say in that essay, I asked him, you know, he said, I got something, there's something for you to do. I said, do what? He said, I don't know. I'll, I'll figure that out later. Just get dressed, put shoes on. And, <laughs> and uh, that, that was his sermon every Sunday morning. And I say sermon because he was a preacher. Uh, but during the week, my dad, who was not seminary trained and uh, learned like a lot of black preachers in an apprenticeship model, during the week, he was an entrepreneur, a small businessman who fed his family by picking up old junk cars that he would load up on the back of a truck, the mechanisms of which he designed himself. I, You know, when you're young, you don't have sense enough to appreciate fully the genius in front of you. I don't know where my dad learned to weld to put those things together. I mean, he, I, he, would he wouldn't even write it on a piece of paper, hmm. but he would create these mechanisms and load these cars, stack them one on top of the other on the back of an old truck, take them to Chatham Steel. That's how he took care of his family. During the week, the junk man picked up old broken cars that other folk had thrown away. On Sunday morning, I saw him lift broken people, reminding them of their value. And um, that was my dad, and his, his life inspires me to this very moment. Is that what then, no pun intended, drove you to, to the pulpit to become a preacher? He certainly was my first example. And, and my mother, by the way, is also a pastor. They have been wonderful examples, but uh, they never pressured me to go into ministry. There was no pressure at all. After all, we're a very large family, uh, but it became clear early on um, that that was my path. That's something I figured out early on. My parents were my earliest examples, but pretty early on, there was another voice that absolutely captivated my imagination, and that was the voice and ministry of Martin Luther King Jr. I was born a year after Dr. King's death. He died in 1968. I was born in 1969. Uh, but early on in my childhood, uh, 
I remember, I remember, I think the first time I probably saw Dr. King's face, uh, Jonathan, you might relate, was on one of those fans that you have in, in these churches in, in this town. That, yeah. that, that comes, comes from the funeral home. There's, there's usually a picture either of Martin Luther King Jr. or, or, or the three Kennedy boys or, or Mahalia Jackson with a kind of beatific look on her face uh, mm -hmm. on that fan. And I remember asking, who is that? Um, and I learned as I uh, grew up, and I was a part of that generation of kids whose parents were fighting for Dr. King's birthday to become a national holiday. So before they actually signed it into a national holiday, which happened, I think, maybe when I was in middle school, my parents uh, were uh, among the group of parents who were already pulling their kids out of school. And I remember spending all day at the May Street Y learning about Martin Luther King Jr. And something about his voice and his courage and his ability to move people uh, to stand up uh, on, on, on the side of what is good and noble and just and true uh, captured my imagination. I often say that I was recruited uh, to Morehouse College by the spirit right. of Martin King Jr. I just wanted to go to his college. I didn't know I'd become the pastor of the church where he served. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Even though you were born the year after um, Dr. King was kit was assassinated, he was a mentor of yours, and you've been following in his in his footsteps. Actually, you've exceeded his footsteps because now you're a member of the United States Senate. One of the one of the ways you followed in his footsteps was going to Morehouse College, and that um, brings up a, a question that we got um submitted by from the audience from emmanuel payton here in washington dc what did your morehouse experience provide you for where you are today morehouse is a special place um you know this last month i was uh invited to give the commencement address for the class of 2022 and um there's no higher honor that you could give to a morehouse man it is a place that emphasizes the training of the head and the tuning of the heart. Um, you know, Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was president of Morehouse during Dr. King's uh, matriculation as a student, um, said that he was disturbed in the language of the day. He said, I'm disturbed about man. I'm disturbed that when we uh, train a man's head, we, we have no way of knowing for sure that we will we will, that his heart will be tuned. Um, and so he was concerned that, that about that, and he wanted to build uh, students who would bring their knowledge and their expertise uh, to the public square, regardless of their discipline, in order to create what Dr. King would later call the beloved community. And there was something about being on that campus, walking every day under the shadow of Martin Luther King Jr.'s statue, uh, pointing with his finger resolutely into the future. Um, that inspired me every single day. Um, Howard Thurman, another graduate of that school, said that over the heads of her students, 
Morehouse holds a crown that she challenges uh, them to grow tall enough to wear. So every every day, every year of my life, I've been trying to stretch uh, to reach the crown, uh, not out of any sense of self-aggrandizement, but, but a deepening commitment uh, to building um, a humanity and building a world that embraces all of our children. Let's talk about some some current events, and in particular, your um, race for re-election. Although we should remind people that when you won election last January, January 2021, you were filling out um, you were you were filling out the remainder of a term from the previous senator, Republican senator, and now you're facing a bit of a tough re-election to a full term, full six-year term in the Senate. Why do you think your race is so competitive? Well, I look, I'm, I'm honored to serve, first of all. It's a real honor when the people of your state say that we would like for you to represent us and our children uh, at the highest levels of the American government. And so I'm filling out a term. Um, but I think the people of Georgia did an amazing thing uh, in a moment in which the country uh, uh, is divided, uh, and there are those who are trying to stoke up uh, the old fires of division. The people of Georgia stood up, and in one fell swoop, sent its uh, their first African American senator and their first Jewish senator to the United States Senate. And I think somewhere in glory, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel are smiling because they marched alongside one another. Uh, Rabbi Heschel said when he marched alongside Dr. King, he felt like his legs were praying. And that's what we need in a moment like this, people who put their body in the fight and in the struggle, which is why a pastor, and, and I enjoy being a pastor, is the reason I've decided to get uh, involved in something as messy as politics. I'm not in love <laughs> with politics, I'm in love with change. And uh, politics for me is a tool to try to advance the work that I've been doing for years, Medicaid expansion, uh, something I fought for for years here in the state of Georgia because I believe healthcare is a human right. Um, been fighting for voting rights. Um, we passed the single largest tax cut for middle and working class families in American history. And now I'm trying to address the pressure that hardworking families are feeling right now amidst this global inflation. I'd like to see us pass a uh, suspending the federal gas tax, and I'd like to see us cap the cost of insulin uh, for people who are struggling right now in a state where one in 12 people have diabetes. And I'm pushing the president of the United States to do substantial student debt cancellation. Mm -hmm. Is the president's uh, low approval rating a drag on your reelection? How concerned are you that the president of your of your own party isn't popular and could hurt you in November? Maybe because I'm a pastor who got elected to the Senate and not a, a senator who used to be a pastor. I honestly don't spend a lot of time thinking about those things. I, um, I'm actually worried about our politics. I'm, I'm worried that we have created a context right now where too much of the politics is about the politicians where their poll numbers are, who's up and who's down, who's in and who's out. And as a result of that, we have no shortage of transactional politicians 
who are so focused on the next election that they're not thinking about the next generation. Um, uh, it is my honor to do this work on behalf of my children. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I know that although their dad is a United States Senator, there's a way in which my children won't be okay unless other people's children are okay. And I'm honored to do that work. So, so this focus on 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 politicians as opposed to policy is that the reason why two years after the nationwide protests over the murder of George Floyd, we haven't seen anything done, despite your very powerful speeches on the floor of the Senate, many of them, on voting rights or even on criminal justice reform. Yeah, think about that. Um, voting rights criminal justice reform, uh, politicians need to center the people they were sent to represent uh, rather than their own interests. It is the reason why, even after watching 19 babies slaughtered in a school, uh, I'm hopeful that we are going to get something done this time. But why are we concerned? Why are we worried? It's because we've seen this terrible movie, this tragedy before where we, we saw after Sandy Hook, no movement after Columbine, 30 years, no movement, um, even to do the things that 80 to 90 percent of the country agrees with. Right. Still no movement uh, in the Senate. If we don't get anything done this time, it will be a signal moment of moral failure uh, on our behalf. And it would suggest that the politics is more important than the people. And I just refuse to accept that premise. And um, I have a lot of respect and appreciation uh, for my colleague, Chris Murphy. And I know that he and others are pushing and I'm doing everything I can. We've got to get something done here for the American people. Let me get you to reflect here because you were a sponsor of the legislation that made Juneteenth a national holiday last year. And along with July 4th, I'm wondering what do the two holidays say, not just about the arc of American history, but also about the values this country has stood for, but not always lived up to? I think of America as a freedom caravan. Uh, freedom is not a destination, it's a journey. And we have been on this journey to try to push the country closer to its ideals. You point out, rightly, there's July the 4th, and then there's Juneteenth. Frederick Douglass, who was a great patriot, loved the country, and an abolitionist, had a famous uh, speech in, in the 1800s before the Emancipation Proclamation uh, entitled, It Is Yours, Not Mine. And he talked about the contradiction between the celebration of independence on July 4th and the fact that um, uh, people were still in slavery in a free country. And um, so there's always been this tension and I see it played out in the American story. And as I point out in my book, A Way Out of No Way, I am an embodiment of that complicated story. Uh, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. I love this country. And that's why I keep fighting for its ideals. I won uh, a hard fought race which made me Georgia's first black senator, by the way, only the 11th black senator in the whole history of the country. The next day I was feeling great. I, I was on all the morning shows. It was a hard fought race. I was on Morning Joe. I was on CBS this morning. I knew I had arrived because I was on The View 
talking to Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> uh, it was a it was a great morning. It was the morning of January sixth, and so by lunchtime we could see that something was unfolding in the Capitol. And by the end of the day, we had all witnessed the most violent attack on our Capitol since the War of eighteen twelve. Anti-Semitic and racist and xenophobic signs trafficked through our capital. And so on January 5th, think about that. Georgia, a former state of the Confederacy, sends a powerful message to the nation, regardless of your po politics or political party. It sent an African-American and a Jew over against the ugly side of our history from the South to the United States January 5th. January 6th, violent assault on the Capitol animated by the big lie, the premise that really some people's voices and certain people's votes ought not count. Uh, you don't get to determine the direction of the country. And so here's where we really live. We live somewhere between January 5th and January 6th, between the forces that would divide us for short-term political gains because people who have no vision engage in division, and the forces that want to push us closer towards our ideals. I choose January 5th, time and time again. Even when I'm disappointed, I choose the US. I choose us, mm -hmm. e pluribus unum, out of many one. Um, Senator Reverend Warnock, uh, we're gonna, I'm letting the control room know right now. We're gonna go a little bit over because I had to get you on two things. One, the January 6th hearings um, are ongoing. Have you learned anything? Um, that's that has surprised you. And do you think you have you seen enough evidence uh, that Donald Trump should be charged with a crime? Well, I'm going to let the committee do its work. And um, uh, I think what I've learned, uh, again, what all of us ought to be learning is that uh, democracy is not a noun, it's a verb, and that it is the most precious thing we have and we have to fight for it. We have to fight for it over and over again. And um, um, what what I what this has done for me is is deepen my resolve to remain vigilant, to remain focused, uh, to register as many people as I can to vote, make sure everybody every eligible voice is heard in our democracy. That's what's at stake. All right. So. Um... The number one thing, it, the best thing I learned about you in reading A Way Out of No Way <clears throat> comes on page 29. Uh, you write, we children grew up playing a game called the dozens, during which participants try to outwit one another with the best insult. And we played, about, played it about as much as we played, uh, as much as we prayed. Yeah. Um, Everybody got teased mercilessly. So I learned to dish it out as well as I could take it. And this is the part that I love. And even became somewhat of a master of the yo mama jokes. You gotta get, you gotta give me one. You gotta give me one. <clears throat> uh, I'm not gonna do that, Jonathan. <laughs> Come on. Not even one. I, I mean, it would, it would take, take a, a little while for me to, <laughs> hey, you, you, you and I will have to uh, sidebar, but uh, about some of that, I'm gonna hold. I am gonna hold you to that, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. 
of Georgia, author of A Way Out of No Way, A Memoir of Truth, Transformation, and the New American Story. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Great to be with you. Take care. <laughs>Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. spring nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress that's what life's all about in your career relationships and your finances let's talk about that last one with the chime secured credit builder visa credit card it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest and if your credit scores grow so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or home sounds like progress right with chime's secure credit card you can start improving your credit scores right away get started today at chime.com build That's chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.